0: All right, Mark, in today's episode, we're talking about how a bag of a thousand beads can help you learn a new skill, the world athletics ban on transgender athletes, the impact of social media on Gen Z, why doctor and therapist of the world's superstars Daniel Amon believes you should name your brain like you would a pet, and we'll be asking the question of should the topic of pornography
1: be brought up in schools today? Mm. All that more. Sounds very interesting. Let's get into it. Guys, welcome back again. Another episode of Man vs. World. I am your host, Mark Weppett, and I again am joined by my young ward, Pete. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. I hope you're doing well too, Mark. I'm doing pretty wonderful. So it seems like we've got some some pretty interesting stuff here today. Uh, let's go ahead and I guess get into this first one here. What's this one? So this is Rafael Kelly, an expert
0: on roughhouse play and stuff like that, and how it relates to young men's development, things like that on the Jordan Peterson podcast, talking about why the artificial is out competing real life.
1: Let's take a look. Yeah. I was going to say, as soon as you said like the, the value of rough house play, I
2: knew that was like yeah. a Jordan Peterson, like pet issue. Yep. So all right, let's see what he's going to say here. A friend of mine, uh, who's a neurobiologist who studies, um, obesity. He said to me that what the food industry has effectively done is they've divorced flavor from nutrition and right. and, when i thought about that like i immediately had this chain of, of thinking which was uh, if 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 junk food is is flavor divorced from nutrition then uh pornography is sexuality divorced from the context of relationships yeah uh, right video games are thrill divorced from physicality and so you take these boys who have yeah. this in- i don't know if i agree with that i feel
1: like video games is uh the the enjoyment of productivity divorced from actual productivity Mm. because a lot of video games that are out there that people are heavily addicted to aren't necessarily thrilling but they produce the sensation of like all right i'm doing something valuable here when you know you're you're really not well you know it's interesting you say that because
0: a buddy of mine was recently in an indie game developers conference in california yeah and one of the speakers was talking about the way you make a video game fun is twofold first of all you have to make the gameplay itself enjoyable. And then secondly, what you have to do is you have to make the progress enjoyable. You have to have progress in the
1: game. Right. And if you have those two pieces, you're golden. Right. Well, some games only have one of them, and yeah. uh, that's all there is to it. But you know, you really only need one of them. As long as you can get the, the neurochemicals kicking in the right direction, it seems like you're going to be pretty fine as a game designer.
2: Anyway, all right. Let me see what this guy has to say here more inherent aggression and you let them play Fortnite and they can play all day. Games are thrill divorced from physicality. And so you take these boys who have this inherent aggression and you let them play Fortnite and they can play all day without any self-regulation from having to, you know, the physical demands of actual rough and tumble play. They can practice shooting and running and jumping and all the things that, you know, I did as a kid um, actually physically. And that's probably not bad necessarily it's not that bad necessarily on its own the problem is that it's yeah. so easily outcompetes the actual the actual thing that we need which is the real physical play hmm that's interesting
1: um yeah i mean like that that whole sentiment is something that i've been railing on for years it's like we've got all these junk forms of basically releasing pleasurable neurochemicals right there these ways that we've learned how to kind of masturbate the brain and trick it into giving us oxytocin serotonin dopamine dopamine probably the biggest one but we get those other ones as well it's like and we just learn how to kind of just trick the brain give us the give us the goods without actually having to earn it because outside of this modern environment we had to legitimately earn them that's like how our brain evolved it's like okay, hey, we need to do these sets of behaviors in order to survive. And so we are going to attach these neurochemicals to these good behaviors so that survival can occur. Um, well, I mean, it's not like the brain sat down and decided that. You could say God did or evolution did or whatever you know framework you want to operate in. But that's basically what happened. And now modern society is so weird. Uh, we've reach such a level of technological advancement that our access to pleasure is far more sophisticated in many ways than our instinctual makeup. And so people are just getting stuck. They're just getting drowned in easy pleasure. And that really does mess us up because there's a lot more things happening when we follow the more natural patterns of our evolution than just pleasure, right? Like, For the example of sex, right? Like, it's not just about sexual pleasure. It's also about, well, procreation. And procreation is not just about, like, you know, making a baby. It's about, like, also creating the family unit and the family structure and the social structure that can support the the healthy development of that baby. And porn just kind of cuts all of that out. And it just gives you that easy access nut. (laughs) And uh, I, the way I see it is that while this stuff it is pleasurable, particularly in the moment, it's not a full substitute as much as some people would like it to be. And I think we all know this. All the people who live this way, there's only like you can only be satisfied with it for so long. Like when I was a kid, I was pretty much in heaven if I could, uh, you know, just play video games all day and jerk off to porn. And I would have been an actual heaven probably for a significant period of time if I could have traded that porn for really actually having sex. Um, there are periods of my life where that's kind of what I did do. You know, I, <laughs> I did. I had sex and I played video games. Um, and I f- felt like it was all I wanted. But you do that for a little while and you realize it's not. And you do that for a little while and you realize, actually, this is leading me, surprisingly, to some very dark places. And... The, the human spirit is more than just a neurochemical like Rubik's Cube to solve. It's partially that, I think, in some ways, like the way we interacted on the surface. It's like, all right, what's the mode of being that produces the highest level of favorable neurochemicals and the lowest level of like, you know, painful neurochemicals, right? Like, how do we live more pleasurably than less pleasurably? Well, in order to do that, you have to, I think, understand who you are, not just as this, like, hunter gatherer robot kind of thing with these fleshy, like, meat circuits flowing through us, you gotta understand that one of the biggest things that really drives the human spirit is fulfillment, is meaning. And meaning is derived from the story that you live in. And at the end of the day, we're all humans, we're all people that are living this weird existence that we call life and we're hurtling through it um, at the speed of time, (laughs) and there's some part of us that wants to know why, that wants to know what for, what am I operating in this place for, especially when there's so much suffering, and so at the end of the day, like the thing that really seems to flip the switches inside us at the highest level is not some kind of cheap fulfillment, but really some kind of deep meaning. And we see this in the sense that we see people actually take on tremendous amounts of suffering for the sake of living in alignment with meaning. And I think it's it's not so much that these um, junk forms of neurochemical pleasure are the main obstacle. It's more that like people lack awareness of what it of how good it can feel to live in alignment with meaning because we're, it's kind of like we're this, this culture that has become disconnected with our, our human spirit, with our humanity, with each other, and in that, we just kind of bump around and just look for some sort of you know high to take away the pain. But if you're willing to be brave enough to actually look at what the the totality of what you feel and you're willing to get past that surface level of am I an immediate pain or pleasure, you're going to find something inside of you that is far more hungry for meaning, far more hungry for fulfillment, far more hungry for purpose than it is for anything else. And it does take a level of maturity and personal conditioning and, you know, growth to be able to consistently live from that place. But I think that anyone who wants to. And this is where you kind of get into the uh, the murky waters of of free will. Like does free will exist or not? I believe it does. But I believe that it's, it's kind of like in this almost abstract binary way. Where it's like I don't believe we have freedom over every single choice that we make. I think a lot of that stuff is deterministic. But I think the freedom that we truly have is the freedom to be present to reality or not. I think it's just like a binary thing. It's like, are you going to be present to your life and be honest about what's there or not? I think that there's some kind of something that's deep inside of us that chooses that the most truest essence of who we are, you know, something that if we're going to break it down on the physical material level probably operates, I would say on the quantum level. Okay. And I, I'm not saying that to sound woo woo. I mean that actually technically like, Quantum mechanics do not behave deterministically. There's something bigger at play that we don't quite understand yet. And I think that's the level of the will. It's like, are we going to be a particle or a wave kind of in our relationship to reality itself? Like that's, the, that's what we see is we see that I'm kind of spiraling off here, but I think it's interesting. It's like that's what quantum particles do. It's like they behave differently depending upon whether or not they're being measured and observed. Which doesn't make any sense, but that's the way that repeatedly proves to be what seems to happen, okay? And so it's like, are we going to be willing to look at the truth or not? And I think something inside of us is doing that. And that really is what determines our course through life. Are we going to be continuously just be this this robot meat puppet on the surface that's just getting battered between different kinds of pains and pleasures, or are we going to be this robotic meat puppet battered between its pains and pleasures that has some kind of rudder that still steers them towards something bigger, greater, deeper, more meaningful, and more fulfilling? Um, and I think it's just a matter of like, are you willing to look at it? Are you willing to show up to that adventure or not? So, you know, there's, uh,
0: I think they're both saints in the uh, Catholic and Orthodox. Uh, church, but there is, I forget their names, <laughs> but there was a, a woman who was in the, the Colosseum who was imprisoned and she had uh, basically her servant with her and her servant was pregnant and they all got fed the lions and it's historically documented and you can see it. And when and, and you go back to that time and people were, people were singing songs of worship as they were cast in, in, and to their death. Mm-hmm. And it got so loud that, you know, people would plug their ears to to stop hearing the joyful noise that was being made. And it's like, how do you get to that place? Because right. most most Christians today, let's be honest, most Christians today, at least in America, that's just not the that's not the way it is. I don't think it would be. Maybe, maybe it would be. But those people
1: clearly had something that people don't have today. Right. And to take that even outside of the Christian framework, this is the thing that I see in our society is like, we see when we like the the knee jerk reaction of like the masses when they see someone behave with genuine integrity and uh, goodwill and, you know, faith and, and belief in the deep and the true and the good. There's this knee jerk reaction to reject it, to hide from it, to ridicule it, to tear it down because If they were to allow that in, then their whole life would be called into question. Like if you were going to acknowledge that, wow, there's some people here that can actually move from a place of joy and power, even, you know, unto torture and death. Well, then that means that there's something out there that I don't, I have no fucking clue about. There's something incredibly powerful, something more powerful than I've ever felt in my entire life that I am entirely ignorant of. And if people were to sincerely consider that, the level of mindfuck that they're hit with is, um, for most people, uh, unbearable, and so they don't. They they like you said they they plug their ears, they don't want to hear it, and that's that to me is that's the the cosmic no, that's the the closing of the will to the truth, um, or at least to the opportunity of experiencing more truth, um, and instead to sit inside their little their little bubble of certainty, even if that little bubble of certainty offers nothing more than shallow pleasure and uh you know the desire to escape from petty pains so you know it's i don't know kind of a kind of a heavy first topic here pete way to way to get us off on this come on man Well,
0: I got a I got a better one for the second one here. Okay, no, so kidding. the World Athletics that was, Committee that was all
1: me <laughs> has banned transgender athletes. Okay. is that a better lighter topic? I don't know. Oh yeah, more more transgender stuff. This is that's this is that's we're better. we're now the Daily Wire guys. All we talk about is uh, transgender uh, activities. That's all but, they do. It's kind of funny. I think it's like it's not the, all they do, but the transgender topic is. Uh, it's just like the the taboo the taboo topic that conservatives finally feel brave enough to talk about. And so they all just like get this like high, like, "Hmm, yeah, I don't agree with that. And I don't care who, who hears me, Um, except for they really usually generally do. But, um, you know, hey, at least they're willing to talk about something. But it is something that's being pressed significantly and it still seems to be gaining steam. So we got to talk about it because it's part of the world and this is man versus world. So anyway, let's get into this one. Speaking of which,
3: transgender athletes are banned from elite international track and field events. Gender.
1: Ah, Chenk's uh, nephew. Nice to see Chank's you. Chenk's nephew. Okay, let's see what he says. Development. This morning, the international governing body over track and field announcing a ban that prevents transgender athletes from participating in female events after going through male puberty. The new requirements affecting about a dozen athletes, including South African Olympic champion, Castor Semenya.
3: Yeah, Castle is cis, but like she still can't f-ing compete, right?
1: Who would need to complete six months of hormone suppressing treatment to race at the 2024 Paris.
3: That's so wild. Like, this, this this in and of itself basically gives the game away, right? Like, she's a cis woman. You know what I mean? She wasn't
1: well, ha- cis's orientation, right? Or is cis have to do look with, it up? Uh, all these things. Yeah, look up what cis is technically, okay? And then look up what is. What is caster? What is it, caster what? So, okay, here it is.
0: Cis, short for cisgender, is a term that means whatever gender you are now is the same as what it was presumed for you at your birth.
1: Okay, From so this trans is Transhub.org. It says a biological... So he's saying that she's a, bio, a biological female, okay? And so, right. but uh, caster has something different,
0: right? I mean, she is cis. I don't understand what the condition is. I'm trying to find...
1: I mean, she looks pretty masculine. So she might have some kind of like pituitary thing. Okay. What? So there. it is an intersex condition. Oh, it's an, that's a Yeah. That's it. Okay. So it's not like your normal female. Okay. They've got something right. that gives them looks like more testosterone. So let's keep that in mind as we continue to watch.
3: It has naturally occurring uh, uh, testosterone development, and it basically gives the entire game away. That is the same as basically, uh, uh, you know, saying that Michael Phelps' uh, wingspan is too long and can't compete. That would, of course, never happen. But they're, like, they're trying to nerf her. That's wild.
1: The latest ban coming less than a year after swimming adopted similar rules, effectively barring trans athletes like NCAA title winner Leah
4: Thomas from competing in female.
3: Yeah, If you ban trans athletes, why are you also making a regulation on testosterone? Like that actually doesn't make any sense. This is what I do not understand. There is no part of sports that's fair. Like, I I don't get it. I, I actually don't understand. Sports is not supposed to be fair. There is no equality of outcome in sports. I hate this there's it's never been fair of course it's not fair that's why there's a first place second place third place i i understand that in certain instances trans women might have uh competitive advantages over cis women right i just don't think that like transness is somehow indecent or people are doing it to cheat it's just who they are
1: okay well that's kind of you know there's a point there but then it gets kind of dumb with it um in my opinion so it's like okay let's take the Castor-Semenya scenario. Um, I'd be fine with Castor probably just continuing to be a unique athlete, okay? Because that is a biological female, but with intersex characteristics, I mean, like, the the ways you can handle it is like, all right, just let her compete with the women, Um, or say, no, sorry, you have to compete with the men. Uh, I think in her case, probably you should just let her compete with the women, most likely, Um, I know it's not fair in the sense that she's got, like, this, you know, unique advantage, but to Hassan's point, I mean, you know, it's, we're not making legislation that let short white guys, you know, compete in the NBA just because they're not, you know, we're not outlawing being tall and black, (laughs) okay, because, like, you know, there's some advantages to be, you know, found in that, that sort of genetic profile for certain kinds of sports, so, yeah, in her case, I don't know if I fully agree with, like, forcing her to do hormone replacement. Um, you know, I could see the argument maybe both ways, like, in the sense that it's like, oh, well, she has a very unique kind of, you know, biological makeup to the point where it's like, if we don't, or if we we should make an exception for her, um, whatever. Um, I can see that. I don't know if I'm fully for that. But when it comes to... The actual trans thing, like the normal trans thing, like, come on, like, that's that's clearly a different scenario. It's clearly like, you know, it's always go. Let's let's be clear about which way it always goes. It always goes, you know, biological males wanting to compete in female sports. Why don't you ever see the opposite? Right. Or if you do, why don't you ever hear about it? because it doesn't work, right? Like it's, you know, a biological woman wanting to compete with men is going to get destroyed, you know, like 99 times out of a hundred, you know, probably even higher, especially when you get into higher level competition. And so it's just, I don't know, this is just like one of those like other examples of someone trying to make an intelligent point to support bullshit stuff. So it's like, what's, what's the alternative? You just let you just let anyone compete like any dude who claims to be a woman compete in female sports. Come on, that's just that's that's not viable. that, that what that does is that destroys the sport for women, right. It, it completely removes the possibility for biological women to be the winners, right? I, and if intersex characteristics like castor-semenia started like like to become far, far, far more common, then yeah, I can see maybe, you know, you would want to legislate some kind of like thing around that. But until then, I think you just got to accept that. Well, she's got some kind of unique characteristics. Um, and I don't know that that's my take on that. What do you think, Pete? I don't know. It's a tricky one. Okay. Are you going to
0: say, OK, well, if you have X amount of testosterone in your body, you get chucked in with the dudes. I don't know if that I would love to see a race. Well, it's think- like if
1: you have a penis. OK, this castor Semenya have a. Like I know some of like some people with that condition, they actually have a vagina right. and a penis. Uh, at least I'm pretty sure that that can that can be a very unique sort of scenario that happens. And if you I think it's fair to say, all right, if you've got a penis, you can't compete in women's sports. I or think that's if you've fair. ever we had a penis, that. okay. If you've ever had a penis, you can't compete in female sports. Um, you <laughs> the know, like that, <laughs> yeah the the penis <laughs> the penis law. All right. <laughs> to me, that like seems that. pretty fair. Okay, uh, but I don't I don't know what I don't know what Caster's got. Um, so yeah, this is just more of this this kind of craziness. Trying to people trying to pretend like they don't understand how this works. It's like I don't know. Go read like a biology textbook from you know prior to 10 years ago yeah i guess so in the meantime enjoy your medals caster i suppose
0: <laughs> uh, well i guess not anymore if they're gonna they're gonna banner but yeah. all right moving on to the next one here so i got a dm from uh, silas here in the club who says hey pete I had a thought today that might be interesting to discuss A Man versus World. Do you think in the future schools should include some sort of porn education as part of sex ed type classes? As more studies coming out about the side effects of porn use and addiction, it seems making sure young people know about the harmful effects as soon as possible might help slow down the epidemic that porn addiction is. As well as slow down the increase of more and more addiction to it, especially since we already know so many young people are already discovering it at younger and younger ages and even watching it while in class and sharing it with friends. So what are your thoughts on this, Mark?
1: Yeah, it should be. Um, But how to do that would be something that uh, would probably have to be thought about because obviously, like any sort of conversations around sexuality and kids is a tricky one. Uh, because it can get weird really fast, um, but at the same time, it's like it's like all right, young kids shouldn't be exposed to adult sexual stuff. I, I'm pretty much in that boat. It's like you know, there, you have to have a certain level of maturity to really be able to appreciate and understand these concepts. But at the same time, freaking you know, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, boys who are either prepubescent or on the you know just entering puberty have a- unrestricted access to the internet you think they're just looking at healthy age-appropriate material no <laughs> it's like I've got, i know all these people who have like these young teenage boys and like yeah he's depressed he's having some problems uh yeah i was like well what does he do he's like oh he pretty much just like sits in his room with his computer all day i'm like oh do you know what he's looking at I'm like no i mean we, we don't we want to give him his privacy i'm like well okay Chances are he's playing a shit ton of video games and he's watching a shit ton of porn. And both of those things in combination can very easily mess a dude up. Uh, It can destroy his motivation, destroy his drive and really screw up his sexuality, uh, which in turn really screws up his social, uh, his ability to interact socially with both his peers and members of the opposite sex. And so it's like I go back and I think about me as a young boy. It's like what would have helped me? Honestly, what would have helped me was something similar to, like, what we, we got around drugs. Like, in, uh, like, 7th and 8th grade, we actually would have a police officer come to our class, and we would have, like, D.A.R.E. education, D.A.R.E. to resist drug drugs and something. I don't know. I forget. It. D.A.R.E. was an acronym. And anyone in my age group probably remembers this stuff. And basically what they did is they they scared you. They told you, all right, here is what can happen when you are addicted to drugs. And it's like, oh, here's what happens to a meth addict. Here's what happens to the heroin addicts. Here's what happens to cokeheads. And it like, you know, it's like explains the horrors of drugs. Okay. And because of that, it makes it a lot easier to stay away from that kind of stuff. Now, I wish honestly back then they were also explaining the dangers of marijuana, but people didn't really understand that stuff as much back then. They didn't understand how much psychosis can be caused by that, how much your life can actually be destroyed by marijuana as well. I mean, I've got people, I've got friends who use marijuana very well um, healthily. They're, you know, they are addicted to it, but, you know, they seem to be getting along okay. But then I know a number of people who have completely destroyed their mental health using marijuana. Um, and so it's like, had that been exposed to people, could that have p- potentially prevented some of this? I think it's possible. Yeah. Um, but a lot of this stuff is evolving so quickly. And the, the systems that are in place to actually educate kids are usually monolithic. They're slow. They uh, they don't really work so well. Um, and then you add the element of, all right, how do we apply this sort of preemptive knowledge in the realm of sexuality? Well, then it becomes an even stickier conversation about like what should be in public school, what is not allowed, like who because like, you know, there's the whole big debate about, well, you can't talk to kids about their sexual orientation or can you? And, um, you know, it's a, it's a complicated thing. And so... Forget about schools right now because, I mean, as much as I would like it there to be, you know, scare-based education of like, all right, here's what can happen if you get addicted to porn. Uh, You can suffer from erectile dysfunction. You can develop crazy freaking fetishes. You can destroy your motivational system, like actually getting in-depth with that kind of stuff. Like if I had been given that in school – there is a huge chance I would have like never escalated and used porn as much as I ended up doing it because I just didn't know. No one knew. No one knew that there could be any downside to it. In fact, all I was told was either you're going to hell, you know, for my Catholic you know school education uh, and that it's bad, um, but not really like like only explained in kind of theological terms. Or, I was told by society, hey, it's totally normal and natural and healthy and, you know, just fine. Use it as much as you want in unlimited quantities. And so, you know, some specifics around, all right, here are the, here's what you actually have to consider. Here are the trade-offs. You're going to use this thing. You're going to have, you know, all this fun. You're going to be able to just, you know, anytime you get a sexual urge, you're going to be able to make it disappear and, you know, all that kind of thing. But... Here are the other problems. Here's what it can do to your ability to perform sexually. Here's what it's going to do to your sexual desires. Here's what it's going to do to your your ability to thrive in sexual relationships, all that kind of stuff. You know, I would have really liked that information. And so it's like, I really think the onus falls on parents here. And I think a lot of parents are very, very afraid to talk to their kids about sexuality. I think most of the people I know never had any sort of authentic sexual guidance from their parents. You know, if anything, it was just like, don't have sex, okay? Or, you know, the super liberal friends is like, okay, well, if you're going to have sex, make sure you use a rubber uh, and stuff like that. And there's so much more to it. There's so much more to it. But a lot of the the, the adults in this world are ignorant around it. And so if you are watching this, then you are in the rare position to actually uh, likely have some knowledge about human sexuality and i would say that it's imperative for you to pass this stuff on to your kids at the rate you deem that they can they need it and are ready for it um and hopefully that those things happen in alignment you know it's like it's the 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 danger is like oh my kid you know he's he's not ready to talk to me about this kind of stuff and then in reality his friend is showing him porn constantly right it's like you don't want to save it for too late because, like, once that shit gets its hooks in you, it's got its hooks in you. Um, and then there's going to have to be some work and uh, stuff to really get on the other side of it and be just fine. So, yeah, I, I think there's got to be some kind of education. I don't have much hope for that ever looking Ever being good in the public school systems anytime soon. I think the private school systems uh, have a lot more leeway with that sort of thing, and they can probably do something much more useful uh, more quickly. But uh, at the end of the day, I think it's it's on parents. So any of you guys looking to be a, a parent, make sure that you really don't drop the ball on this or your kids are going to suffer uh, in the way that I and millions of other, other men have suffered.
0: The next thing I wanted to show you today is from Joe Rogan and he's talking about the impact of social media on Gen Z.
5: I got this little it's pretty cool this little kickstand thing that sticks up with your phone. Oh, little, that's great. I think this is called yeah. a coup case or something like that. I forget what it's called, but it's like bam so I just sit there. That's great. And I watch stuff while yeah. I'm eating, right. you know, and I I think I'm not addicted that way. Oh, I'm just being entertained. But that's
4: YouTube. You're watching yeah. you're watching substance there instead of mindlessly scrolling, which is what yes. I was doing. And it just, that creates so many bad mm-hmm. like emotions and stuff. It's like, I don't want, I don't want to feel that way.
5: Isn't that weird that mindlessly scrolling creates bad emotions? Like, what is that? Why does it do that? Is it just, you feel like you're wasting time?
4: You're wasting time. You're seeing a bunch of different things. I actually just like, uh,
1: in my, like, you know, I'm, I'm I practice the Metascript method journaling that I developed where it's like a way to to modify your habits and stuff like this by journaling and talking to yourself. And I was noticing that I was falling into some scrolling um, a little bit recently. And I just like wrote this post to myself like, dude, scrolling is the dumbest shit you can do. It is such a waste of life. And it makes your life so much worse in general. Like maybe a little bit here and there is not that big of a deal. But like in general, it's like, all right, either do work. Okay, if you if you're supposed to be doing work, do work. Okay, take a break if you need to take a break. Go go for a walk. Go talk to your wife. You know, go take a nap. All right, um, or do something actually fun. All right, like if I if I don't want to work anymore, I don't need a break. I just like. Don't want to work well, then don't freaking work. Go like play a video game, read a book, like do something you actually think is fun. Scrolling is like none of those things, it's not really fun, it's not really relaxing, it doesn't really put you in a good mood. All it does is just like stab your brain with like base stimulation. And some scrolling is even worse than others, right? Like you got scrolling that can lead to, um, you know, basically just. Porn or uh, you know some kind of just sexually stimulating yourself with pixels, which is fucking weird. Just on a fundamental level, it's a dumb thing to do. I think as a man, um, or it, you could be you know I, in the past I've gotten like hooked on like the the political stuff where it's really just rage porn. It's just like oh outrage, oh I can't believe they did this, oh my goodness, look what, what's the sc- they're doing. AOC said what? And it's just like. It's like that stuff Guilty. is just horrible, <laughs> okay? It's horrible. And it's like if you're going to do it, like I feel like it's better to just have a few podcasts you follow and that you just keep up with every once in a while cuz I don't think it's wrong to, to to be aware of what's happening in the culture, but scroll culture is poisonous. And it really is. you know at the same time we go fishing there like we we have ads there we put out content micro content and stuff like that because that's where people are but ultimately I, that's not where i want people to interact with me i want people to like okay listen to my podcast okay you know buy my course actually like get my emails and read them and get value from them don't like just relying on like the feed to do to do good work i think is a uh, less than ideal way to go but anyway all right let me i cut this guy off is there more to this worth hearing yeah, a little bit. All
4: right. Even when you're looking at your, I try that for a while, looking at my own, stuff, I'll just look at my own stuff. I won't look at everybody's stuff. But then you start getting like, how many likes does this have? How mm, many, it's like, that's you, you end up, yeah, you end up yeah. swimming in your own narcissism. Mm. So it's like, no, uh, stop that now. Yes, you absolutely. Know? But if I'm, my point is, I'm navigating this at 50 when my mind has already been developed. Mm-hmm. What chance do kids have developing through this time period?
5: It's a different world, but I think they're going to be fine. Yeah. I really do. I think there's going to be a transitionary period where we lose a lot of kids. They don't They don't know what the fuck they're doing and they get lost in it. But there's gonna be enough kids that recognize, like, okay, this is just the new reality of life right. and if you wanna be successful, right. just like you when you were young, right. when I you had focus and dedication, you realize there's a lot of people out there that don't do that and you know I can learn from them what not to do. Right. There's kids that are doing that now too.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. What's, what we have going for us is that technology has now become so mainstream that, uh, especially like social media and this kind of scrolling stuff, it's become so mainstream that the cool kids will naturally want to rebel from it, I think, right? Like that's, that's what kids do is they, they're not – they're dumb. Kids are dumb. You know, all, most kids are dumb. Um, but they're not totally dumb. You know, they they can feel when something is off. They can feel when there's something that's not quite right with the world. And they will want to rebel and push against those things. And they may not do it perfectly uh, in the right way. But I think we will get to the point where um, there will be a segment of kids who recognize, oh, that's just, that's dumb. You know, it's like uh, social media obsession and stuff like that will just be like viewed as drug usage. Just a different kind of drug usage. It's like. All right, is there going to be a segment of people who think that doing drugs in high school is cool? Yes, of course. Um, but there's also a segment of people in high school who think, yeah, the, the druggies are fucking losers. Like they just – all they do is get high and they're not going anywhere and it's it's not helping them. Um, and of course, this is kind of a blanket statement. I'm not saying that you know all drug usage is always bad and any experimentation is 100% should be completely denied and you know, stamped out of humanity. I'm not saying that. But like – there will be, I think, like he's saying, uh, a good segment of the population, especially the ones who have good role models, um, that will rise above this kind of thing, uh, and that's that's what I'm looking forward to. That, like, we can already kind of see that in there is there's a segment of the like there's a there's the the largest um, I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure I think there's the largest percentage of young people today who would identify as conservative. Um, which is surprising to me, but also not surprising, because it's like they've had the, le- the, the, the lefty stuff shoved down their throats so hard for so long that they're just they just want to get the hell away from it. Um, very much in the same way that. Prior to this time period, a lot of the conservative views were so heavily shoved down people's face and that was just illogical. It was just kind of like um, irrational Bible thumping that didn't really have much depth or substance, just a lot of fire and brimstone. And kids naturally rebelled against that. And I think that anytime you've got this majority narrative that divorces itself from logic, that divorces itself from nuance, from like the really the pursuit of truth, there's gonna be a rebellion against it, and so yeah, I would agree with them. I think some of that's gonna be coming towards social social media, but uh, like Joe said, I think we are gonna lo- lose a lot of kids. Hopefully, not you know their lives, but I think you know a bunch of people are just gonna get lost in that shit um, and really yeah. limit their potential. And hopefully, they can all turn it around. But realistically speaking, all of them will not, and uh, there will be there will be people who really get screwed up from it. In the meantime. Something I've noticed in me
0: is that, and I don't know. I'm assuming this is the case with other people too, but maybe it's not. But I've noticed with myself that I never run to mindlessly zombie scrolling when I'm like, "Man, I really want some pleasure right now." It's always a response that's almost you know lizard brain esque in an attempt to get away from pain.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I think this this could be applied to a lot of stuff too. Like when I eat the most junk food is not when I'm stuffed and I'm like, oh, I just want, I just want something that tastes really good right now. It's when I'm hungry and I'm trying to get away from that feeling of hunger. So I just, ah, Yeah. You know and It's I mean? usually
1: like, I want to get away from that feeling of hunger, but I don't want to go like, make, I don't want to food. make food. I don't want to oh, make so much work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. That's what scrolling so, is.
0: <laughs> I think you're right. That there's a potential for there to be a, a shift in the direction, but for that to happen, it's really going to be less about saying no to stimulus and saying yes to learning how to deal with pain in a healthy way. Mm. And that's a skill that I think, you know, is lacking in a lot of people, but yeah, you know, we could get there. Yeah. That's what we're all about here. All right. The next thing I wanted to show you is uh, this doctor and therapist to the world superstars, Daniel Amon on why you need to create disassociation between you and your brain. Okay. So what do you mean? So, to world superstars, what is he like? Who's he work with? Like Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, all those guys. He's their therapist. Oh, who are basically. just doing great.
2: Okay. Good. All right. Yeah, cool. doing really well. Okay. Disassociating from your brain, i.e., giving your brain a name, as you call it in your book, so that you can have a conversation with it. That sounds like a funny thing to do. If I call my brain, I'm going to give my brain a name. My brain is now called. I'm going to call it Daniel. So there's Stephen, who is me, and there's Daniel. Who is me? <laughs> but my Daniel is my brain, and I am Stephen. And w- what is the upside in creating the separation? Psychological distance okay. from the noise in your head. So you don't
6: attach to it. So if it's Daniel, then you can accept what he says, or you can reject it. Okay. So when I first heard about this uh, from Stephen Hayes. Um- this
1: doesn't even make sense. Um, I'm going to let him speak, but uh, all right, I'm, I'll let him finish. But this, I'm already not a fan of this approach.
6: I'm like, what would I give name? And I named myself after my pet raccoon when I was 16. And like my mind, Hermie was a shitster. She <laughs> TP'd my mother's bathroom. She ate all the fish out of my sister's aquarium. She'd leave raccoon poo in my shoes. She's, I loved her. I loved me but my mind is a troublemaker. It'll like conjure up all sorts of negative scenarios. So if I separate from it, I can put Hermie metaphorically in her cage. And now what I do, cause I love her is I'll put her on her back and I'll tickle her or I'll cuddle her. I'm like, it's gonna be all right. You don't have to believe every stupid thing you think. Yes, we are gonna die but we're not going to die today. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like
1: the way that I see it, it's like, first of all, it's like, this is kind of like a weird way to look at it. It's kind of low resolution. I'd have to hear maybe more and see if he gets more in depth with it. But in general, it's like you have different things that you can access inside your consciousness, right? Like you can feel your feelings. That's one thing. But then you can also listen to your rationality, which is another thing. And so it's like, which one of them is this animal that you're naming? Which one of the one is which one's the observer that you're talking about? and I don't think it's such a clear-cut thing um, and you need to be able to work with both of these aspects, your rationality and your emotionality uh, because they're coming from different parts of your brain and I would argue some would argue you can even have like a you know another part where it's like your your instincts or your, your gut um, which operates even on a, a different level and then you've got this kind of mediator between all of them all right? But in general, it's like just kind of this idea of putting it in a cage doesn't seem right to me. You know, this idea of even labeling it as, as giving it a different, like treating it like a different person entirely is weird. Um, maybe not entirely weird. Like it's okay to label. All right, here's my emotion. Say this. My rationality says this. You know, even in my content, we we separate into the primal and the terminal self. So some kind of separation. Very useful, but I think you gotta be more surgical with it because there are different operations that you need to perform with each of those sides. So for example, with your rationality, all right? Your rationality, its downfall, well, it's got many downfalls, but one of its downfalls is that the way it presents information sometimes is incredibly unhelpful. So your if your rational mind is constantly operating from this should mentality, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this, you should do, this, you should do that. It's kind of like the inner critic, they call it, okay? Operating like working with that part of you. You can't like you don't want to just put that in a cage okay, you want to Change the way that it, it positions itself like really that part of you is Giving you a signal. Hey, something's wrong. Maybe okay, but we can't treat it like gospel All right, just because it's our rationality doesn't mean that it's perfectly rational. Sometimes it's wrong Sometimes it's horribly wrong and then sometimes it's right, but it's approaching the situation in the wrong way so for example like I believe your rationality should be presenting options to you. It shouldn't be telling you what to do. Many people, they, they think that's silly. It's like, well, if your rationality is not choosing your path, which part should be? I believe your emotions should be. But it, your emotions should be choosing the path based upon an interaction with your rationality. So it's like your rationality, it should be kind of like your own little internal chat GPT, not your internal master right basically think about it like this like your rationality it creates this like computer interface that'll serve up a bunch of different options in any given situation it's like okay i'm stressed about this thing all right rationality what are our options here and it spits out a bunch of different things okay and then your emotionality has to kind of walk through each of these and like run simulations you you run uh you know Like, use your imagination to walk through each of these, to try them on. It's almost like you're at a um, restaurant and you're trying to pick something off a menu. How do you pick something off a menu at a restaurant? Well, you look at the options and then you imagine, what would it be like to eat this? Hmm, that that sounds good. Oh, that doesn't sound good. Oh, I wonder if I can get this, but then I'll ask the waiter to make this adjustment to it. That's exactly what we need to be doing inside of ourselves. But primarily, the decision maker is actually the emotionality. And when you get away from that, you live in this kind of state of self-enslavement where you're constantly trying to serve your rational ideas without giving yourself any sort of emotional input, and then you just feel constantly like you're fighting yourself. So the rationality has got to be put into that kind of framework. And I think your emotionality, it needs to be translated. You know, you need to constantly be taking these emotional sensations that are like embodied experiences and translating them into words. And a lot of times when you translate those emotions into words, you're going to find some truth in there. You're going to find some lies in there. But once they're articulated, it's far more easy to separate out the truths and the lies. And the, the lies, you throw away. But the truths, you use those to help modify the options in front of you. So it's really like this conversation between your rationality and your emotionality. That's what leads to, I think, proper self-relationship, proper interaction. And... Um, I don't know. I guess what he's saying here—it's not entirely without merit—but I feel like it's so low resolution um, and so unsophisticated that it could potentially just cause more harm than good. Because I can see people just like dismissing then any sort of chatter in their brain as "oh, that's just Daniel. We got to lock him in the cage. I just need to tickle him." What does that mean? Okay, it's like you know, you're just going to tell it to calm down. Everything's going to be okay. Well, no, you probably got to listen to him. He might, he probably has some kind of point in there that is important. And the goal isn't to lock him in the cage, it's to hear him and then do the work to suss through and figure out well what's actually good there. What's actually useful there. That's my take.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I do like how a lot of people, it seems like they, just because they think something, they, it has this sort of air of truth around it for them. It's like, yes. well, I thought it, so therefore, and it's like, well, no, just because a bird flies over your head doesn't mean it has to make a nest in your hair. And so not every thought that comes through your head is yours, right? Not every thought that comes through your head is right. Yeah, Some of them are. Mm-hmm. And so that's a good point. Because if you just throw it in the cage, you're, you're negatively, <clears throat> you're harming your self relationship
1: for sure. So yeah, yeah. you got to do the work that like, the thing is, you don't really know what is true. Until you actually look at it with like until you get all the parts of your psyche in conversation about the thing. You don't know what your best course of action is until you bring all the parts of your being to the table and have a conversation about it. That's it. It's like until then you have fragments of your psyche all saying different things and there might be elements of truth, elements of lie, maybe total truth, but we don't even know yet. And so it's like we can't can't have – we can't let any one part of our psyche claim like total dominance and be like, this is this part when this part speaks, it's, it's always 100% clearly right. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. there's the, it always has to be this, this filtering process where it all comes to bear. And this is very uncomfortable for most people at first, because essentially in order to do this, you have to literally engage in cognitive dissonance where one part of you thinks one thing and another part of you thinks another thing. And until you're used to that, it feels like, oh, well, I'm not wrong, but I am wrong, but I don't want to be wrong. Is that part wrong? It's just like, it feels shitty and, and weird. But as you get used to it and you realize it's not this like high stakes, duke them out, like battle to the death. And it's actually a friendly conversation where all parts are working for your greatest good. Um, that they you know they just need each other to really pull it all together then the 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 spirit of the interaction changes um, the feel of it changes it becomes easier you become more adept at it uh, just like how like you know you can have people who initially don't get along well they fight with each other they bicker they're unproductive whenever they interact but they can learn better communication skills learn how to respect each other learn how to present their ideas in a way that the other person can vibe with and they can actually go from that to a very productive self-relationship and i think that's really the the heart of what needs to happen inside of all of our heads right on all right the next thing i wanted to show you is a youtube short from
0: ali Abdal. hey speaking of uh doom scrolling uh (laughs) youtube short here from ali Abdal on how a bag of a thousand beads can help you learn a new skill all right let's see the fastest way to learn a new skill Well, imagine you wanted to learn a new language. Maybe you've been fascinated by it for years and never had the time or the motivation to start. Finally, you decide to take the plunge and sign up for lessons. Now, your teacher hands you a bag of 1,000 beads and tells you that every time you make a mistake while learning the language, you have to remove a bead from the bag. And they tell you that the goal is to empty the bag as quickly as possible. So at first, this seems like a strange way to learn, but as you make progress, you see the power of the bag of beads concept and that each bead represents a challenge to overcome. You become obsessed with emptying the bag as quickly as possible, and you start setting aside more and more time each day to learn the language. Every time you take out the bead, you feel a sense of accomplishment that propels you forward. And you start to see mistakes, not as mistakes, but as necessary learning opportunities. This is a concept from the fantastic book Effortless by Greg McKeown, and it's worth remembering next time you're learning something new. What's the... F-
1: yes, I agree with this in spirit, but there is... It's not a perfect analogy. And so I'm not trying to detract from it because it, it still illustrates something I think you know useful. But like, let's talk about it. So, really, what this is doing is it's it's turning a mistake, which for most people is uncomfortable and undesirable, um, into a win situation where it's like, oh, I made a mistake. Nice. I get to take a a, a little bead out. Fantastic. Okay. So that in itself is incredibly powerful because that's how we get better, is we put ourselves in situations that are outside of our skill range. And as we're stretching ourselves, we will make mistakes, but as we make those mistakes, we're actually improving, where our brain is learning and that sort of thing. But the problem with this is that we always want to game the system, right? And people, like, if you're incentivizing mistakes, that's not exactly what you want to incentivize, right? Like, ultimately, when you're practicing a skill, you're not trying to make a mistake. You're trying to perform the skill. And if you let yourself get into the situation where it's like, oh, I don't even need to really try. I don't need to really try and make it happen because I'm aiming for the mistake. Well, there's going to be a limitation that you're going to run into. And I see this with people in life where they've become so comfortable with making mistakes, which is on some level useful and good, but it actually ends up preventing them from seriously pursuing success. It's like they set out to fail rather than the set out to win. It's like the mistake is only really valuable if you're playing all out, if you're trying to win. If you're not trying to win and you make a mistake, well, then that's kind of bullshit. You're not really going to get anywhere with that. And so it's like there has to be the stakes where it's like you're putting your brain in a position of like, oh, I'm going to really try and pull this off. I'm going to give it my best effort. And Yeah, if I make a mistake, okay, fine, that's still a win because we did a we did a sincere round of practice. But if it's not a sincere round of practice, I would argue that's that's not a win. And in many ways, you're then just reinforcing the behavior of only half assing it, which is the opposite of what you need to do to win. So again, I love the the general concept, you know, reducing that fear of failure, but there also needs to be the bravery of being willing to like seriously try it. You know, I'll see this with seriously try to win. And I see this with uh, guys who try to quit porn is that they get so comfortable with the idea of like, Oh, it's okay. If I relapse, I can, I can just do better next time and yada, yada, yada. Um, And those kinds of guys almost never quit because they never are sincerely trying to hit 90 days. They're like, Oh, I'm I'm just going to aim for like three days. I'm just going to just one day at a time, man, just one day at a time. That's all I got to do. And, at certain points, maybe that is what you got to do to like, if you're in a really rough spot, you know, if addicts, they, they they have to enter the state regularly, especially if they're coming from a really tough place of, you know, coming from a bad place. They want to get out of their addiction. Everything just seems so hard. All they can handle is they have, all right, just get through today. Yeah, I get that. But if you want to be good for life, okay, at some point, you're going to have to start thinking bigger. You're going to have to start aiming like, you know what, I'm not just getting through today. This is how I'm going to fucking live. This is how I'm permanently going to live. And it takes a certain amount of time to absorb and integrate the idea that you are going to make a permanent change. You are going to achieve a high-level accomplishment, right? Um, And at some point, that shift has to occur. You have to be willing to take it all the way to that level. And so as long as that part's accounted for, sure. Sure great analogy but without that part then you know this is not really going to get you that much further in my opinion
0: i was trying to learn uh what's it called oh all you need is love the beatles song yeah on guitar and i was so mad at myself every time i I was like man i want i want to learn this faster (laughs) and uh but it was funny actually i watched this and i was like oh okay let me let me let me try i don't have a bag of beads but just let me think of my mistakes as there's a set amount of them and Mm -hmm. I have to get through them. And then all of a sudden it was like, Oh, this is kind of, yeah, this kind of works. Okay. If you think of it as like, okay, at some point I'm going to stop messing up, but in the meantime, I just got to get through it. You know, it's a good way
1: to get started. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's another way to look at that might almost be um, better is that instead of every mistake you take a beat at beat out It's like every point you get frustrated, that's when you take a beat out because like (laughs) that's where the real, uh, I think, stretch is occurring. It's like, okay, oh, I got frustrated and I calmed down and I got back to it because that's where, you know, there is a for sure finite number of those like where you're you're reaching up against your your, your limits. It means you're, you're setting appropriately large goals. And, you know, maybe there's a point, I mean, there is for sure a point where you stop getting frustrated with something, but sometimes the, uh, the act of like the, the, like the skill of practice is separate from the actual skill you're building. So for example, what I mean is like, like for me with writing, you know, writing used to be Pretty frustrating. You know, it used to be hard. Um, Now I write, you know, email five days a week um, and a lot of other content on top of that. And so it's like, at first, like I I had to build the skill of being able to write. And eventually I built that skill. I learned how to relax and I learned how to, like, pretty much never get frustrated writing. But that's a separate skill from being a good writer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, being a good writer is something that I'm still, you know, working on. I'm still trying to become far better at that. But, you know, really, I guess what I'm getting at here is that if you can master the meta skills, the skills that lead to the development of other skills, (laughs) like the ability to choose what habit to work on is like, like, as James Clear says, the most important habit is the habit of knowing which habit to build, Right. The the most important element of practice is knowing how to practice, not so much, you know, the thing you're actually practicing. So it's like these meta skills are what really fascinates me, because once you have them, then that's what opens up the door to the smoothest progress, like biologically possible in the other areas of life, you know, to the extent that you can control them. But yeah, yeah that's right kind on. Of a separate thing. But
0: all right. What else we got here? All right. Last but not least. It's finally happened, scammers are using AI to catfish men on Reddit. There's an article here and there was was a comment in reaction to this story that I wanna read for you because I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, This guy said, this is good news for everyone. Number one, simps are getting robbed out of their money which will lead to women losing money too. And two, this AI will help nerdy simps create their own ideal versions of women so that they can simp to those virtual gals which will save their money. Meanwhile, real women get robbed out of male attention as well, which hopefully will deflate their overinflated egos. So with the rise of AI, I can feel that there is hope for humanity after all.
1: <laughs> okay, so that was obviously a very uh, bitter person um, <laughs> writing that. But like, this is this is what somehow I, sh- I didn't necessarily see this coming, uh, I, but I think we should have all like known it, that it was eventually just going to be like dudes selling fake pictures of hot chicks to other dudes. Like, that's what You know, the porn culture is ultimately going to devolve into eventually. I don't know if there's even going to be a place for like actual female performers. It's going to be the people like I I actually I did say this before. It's going to eventually just be these A.I. farms that are competing with each other where they've got like a whole harem of like A.I. sex bots, you know, creating porn, creating haptic feedback, like full immersion you know, VR fleshlight porn. You know, it's like that's what's going to be happening. And it's you know, let's be real. It's primarily going to be dudes creating that kind of stuff because, one, they have the drive. And, two, man, guys are typically the ones who are the computer programmers, you know, like something like 90% of them probably. And so it's just going to be – it's just a – it's almost like straight guys are going to get uh, a taste in some weird way of like what gay guys have. Like gay guys, it's like you got two male sex drives together, which, you know, to a straight man, it's like, whoa, you guys got it pretty good. Well, (laughs) this will be similar because now you have other straight dudes catering to your sexual tastes and you don't have any sort of uh, anyone else you have to please uh, in the intermediary. So, yeah, it's sad, Um, but I guess supposedly – I guess you could view it as expected at this point. So I don't know. The world is going into a weird place. You're better off getting yourself out of it for sure. Absolutely. And
0: to do that, go ahead and check out the training in the description if you haven't already. And
1: uh, that's all we got for this week. That was fun. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, good stuff here, man. All right, friends, yeah, like, like Pete said, if you want to quit porn, make sure you check out the link in the description. I've got uh, three secrets there that'll really distill the process of quitting porn for you, probably in a way that you've never really heard
5: before. It can be incredibly valuable. So check that out. Ooh, yeah, See you all in the next one. Peace.